This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 6 through 15. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. And I get to serve as the pastor of this church. Um, if, if I am a new face, welcome to you. We're glad that you have joined us over the last couple of months. Um, I have spoken with a few people on the patio, and they're like, this guy is really chatty. Why does he keep telling me about Trinity? And then by the end, I say, oh, and I'm, I get to serve as a pastor of this church. And they say, oh, we joined while you were gone. So welcome to each of you. Um, our family is excited to be back. It truly, I wanted to say as we get going, a huge thank you to our staff, to our elders, to our congregation um, for, for holding down the fort. Thank you to all the teachers who, who taught so faithfully as we encountered Jesus over the summer and we went into the Gospels and we learned what Jesus was really like. I'll be very honest, I listened to none of those sermons over the summer, did not check on anybody, but we had a fun opportunity to attend local churches uh, wherever we were. So special thank you to the staff, special thank you to the, the guest preachers and teachers, and thank you to you. Um, I will be honest in saying sabbatical has been and was one of the great honors of ministry that I've had to this point in my shortish career. And I'm really thankful because it's a statement that when we leave, we're okay. When my family takes a vacation, when we go on sabbatical, this church is secure because the lead pastor is not the anchor and foundation of this church, Jesus is. And so it's a statement to me and to our family, hopefully it's a statement to you that this church is about the gospel, it's about Jesus, it's my joy to be able to present him to you. That's my job. I get to present Jesus to you. And so I'm grateful to have had some time to rest, and I'm grateful to be back and to lead and to love you. Um, Before I jump into our fall vision series, which we are beginning today, which we've entitled Holy Resistance, Going Through the Lord's Prayer. I wanted to give you just the three, maybe three vignettes or just a couple of images and stories from sabbatical. It's certainly going to get sprinkled in over the next few months or a few weeks at least. There'll be things that God has shown me over these months that are going to come into this teaching series through the Lord's Prayer, but a couple of things as we get started. And really, if you are familiar with Trinity, you know that we have been talking about the development of what we call a rule of life. And one of the rules of life is Sabbath. And so I got to have an extended Sabbath called a sabbatical, but Sabbath practice is one of the practices that we talk about as a church, which is time to rest, recalibrate, and connect with God. And of course, that's what we had on steroids, extended time to say, how's my heart? I want to continue to overflow. How's my marriage? How are my children? Uh, I want to have inventory with God. He needs to check my heart. I want to know his. 
Right, that's what we had for those three months. But we also practice this regularly as a church. And so from our practice, there are three movements that I want to take you through and show you a couple pictures, and then we're jumping in to the Lord's Prayer. So part one, stop and rest. Okay, stop and rest. You have to stop and rest <laughs> when you're going to take a break. This is the flight out of town. Like we were ready to take a break. One of the things that I shared with our church is that before we church planted, four years before, we said, hey, it will be about nine years on staff and about 17 years in total. Would it be possible for our family to have a sabbatical after we plant Trinity? And they said, yes, we would love to move in that direction. Let's plan for it. And so we were ready to take a break. I, I want all of y'all to have a sabbatical, okay? You can come with us next time. It's amazing. Tell your employer, hey, I need three months to rest and recuperate. My pastor told me his was, his was amazing. But you just got to like figure out how to stop. And when your engine is revving at a high level, you know that stopping is not easy, right? I told Jeff and I told others that it felt like we were having maybe a, a two-week vacation and that we were about to come back. Like we had a little extra time off and that I didn't really have the chance to fully stop and rest. I was just going to stop and they were going to come back and work. And so I had to take some time, we can go to some of the next slides, to figure out how to rest. This is where we stayed for most of our sabbatical. You can tell we're in the country. Look at those cow chairs in the background. We were in western North Carolina where we grew up. We stayed at my wife's uh, folks' family's house. We stayed in one bedroom with five of us. Beautiful new home. They had a huge farmhouse with like five or six bedrooms. Sold that. They were supposed to have a special place for the kids finished. It wasn't quite done. So all five of us stayed in one bedroom. Air mattresses picked up, put away every morning, every night. I'll be very honest. I was a little worried about that. A little worried about how that was going to feel to my soul and to my spirit. Hey, I'm getting this sabbatical. I got to sleep with my kids in the room. Started to complain a little bit. Danielle said, this is what God has given us. And as I thought about that, I said, you're right. This is where we're supposed to be. And so we had a sleepover for two months, all right? We're recovering from that. It's totally fine. But after you allow yourself to stop and rest, one of the uh, spiritual guides and counselors that I was meeting with said, I want you to delight. You got to find those places in your life that are dormant and let them come back to life. And that just means play. It means laugh. This is our extended family. These are my siblings and their spouses and some of the cousins up in Pisgah National Forest up on top of a mountain. And so most of our time delighting was spent with extended family. As many of you know, we're the only folks who are on the West Coast. All of our, our extended family is on the East Coast. This is my father on the left. We got to do a getaway with my dad. Uh, as you probably also know, I'm not sure I have a picture of my mother, but my mother is a, a cancer survivor right now. I got to be with her during sessions five and six of her chemotherapy. And so I got to delight in just being present with my mom, got to delight in being present with my dad and my brothers. Uh, we just ate some amazing Indian food. It was a James Beard awarded restaurant in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, so that, if that doesn't, that's not the Indian food, by the way. But if that doesn't give you just, you know, a lot of joy and delight, then nothing will. Good food, good people, good time with your family. Uh, one of the little stories from spending time with my dad and brothers is that over the last few years, man, I'm going to go ahead and say over the last few decades, I think I've only seen my father cry once or twice. He's a man of his generation. He doesn't show a lot of emotion, but we know he's got a lot of emotion. He is a pastor, and now he is a caregiver for our mother. 
and he was able to cry with us as his sons. And that's really momentous. I mean, that's special to say, man, we are safe enough for our father to show us his tears. And so not everything, it's not a glorified vacation per se, but in some senses, it's delighting in the people and the places and the tastes and saying, God, thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the tears. Thank you for that meal. Thank you for allowing us to get away. Can ice cream with cousins be an aspect of delight from the Lord? You bet. You bet. Of course it can. I mean, this is one of the trips we took from Western North Carolina, seven hours to the coast to Wilmington. It was probably our furthest trip. We considered going up to New York from there and then maybe to Boston. That was part of our maybes. We said, hey, we have a small vehicle with three large children across the back seat. No, 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 we're going back home. Right, so we went to Wilmington, did not go to New York and Boston, but we came back, best decision of the sabbatical, uh, to rest and come back home. And then the last movement in our sabbatical practice is as you stop and rest and delight. What you want your heart to get to is worship. Can you eat an ice cream cone and worship? Or can you spend an evening on a couch with your father and worship? Or does worship have to be in this space? Can I take my mother to her final chemotherapy session and find that to be an aspect of worship because God is there? One of the things I'll share with you at the end of the summer is that we came back in August. Our kids had to transition back into school. And so we came back early August. And one of the things that Danielle and I got to do together, we had a getaway at the beginning and we had a getaway at the end with just us. And our getaway at the end, I don't know if you can tell where that is from that beautiful subway system. Where do you think that is? That's New York, all right? No subway system smells like New York's, all right? We were in New York, and um, that's not the subway. This is Danielle going, yes, let's roll, right? You see her? She's behind me. I'm taking a one-handed picture. We're along the Hudson. We're enjoying New York City because we had the privilege to go uh, to Tim Keller's memorial in person. And so this is St. Patrick's Cathedral. Many of you have probably been there and treated it like a museum. Uh, This is the first time that I got to be in St. Patrick's Cathedral and treat it as a house of worship. With 2,500 people, most of them strangers, a few people who were well-known, a bit of the who's who, and I am not part of that crowd. The only reason we were invited to attend in person is because I went to seminary with Michael Keller. We're a longtime friends, and so they invited Danielle and I to come and to be there in person. And so we got to worship. We got to worship on the bikes. Say, thank you, Lord, for bringing us here to this space. We got to worship in the cathedral to say, thank you for this man who shaped our lives and changed so many. We got to say thank you for a getaway. This time is from you and it's for you. Thank you. We honor you. We worship you. It's not just a glorified vacation to consume everything you can, but it's a chance to encounter God again and to say, fill my heart up. I need you. I want you. So different experiences, different vignettes, most of it with family, Two months in North Carolina, one month in San Diego. And then the last thing I did was I became a pond pastor, okay? This is something that I did in my previous life. You might not have known this, but when I was in college and when I was in grad school, I built waterfalls and ponds. And so a friend of mine said, would you like to build a waterfall for me? I wish I had one moving. Text me and I'll send you one of it in action. Uh, we, we did get it rolling. There is water coming down it. But to build this waterfall was my project over the month of August. 
Mason was supposed to be my primary helper. Uh, he fell asleep at noon on day two. He's like, Dad, and this is not what I expected. This is way harder. Um, digging through some clay and then moving boulders up a hill wasn't his cup of tea. Uh, but it was a joy to my heart to do something and build something beautiful and to build something meaningful that would give me purpose over that month. And so I was so honored to be able to do this for a friend here in San Diego. So I was working in a different way during part of August, but it was good for my hands, good for my heart. And so thank you for letting us do that. I'm very grateful. <clears throat> Stop and rest, delight, and worship. All right. I'm going to take us to Matthew chapter 6. If you'd like to have a Bible open, I'm even going to start with Luke 11, which is the other place where the Lord's Prayer is captured and recorded in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 11, Luke tells us that Jesus is praying in a certain place, and when he finished, his disciples came to him and asked him a very specific question, which was, Lord, teach us to pray as John has also taught his disciples to pray. I'm going to say more about this throughout the coming weeks. But I want to say this is what we are asking in this season of our church life. This is a vision series for the fall. We are starting today. This is the question that we are going to be asking over the next five to six to seven weeks. Jesus, teach us to pray. And we are about to enter into a master class on prayer with Jesus himself. And I would like to press you to consider and to believe that the request made by those disciples, Jesus teaches to pray, has possibly never been more urgent than it is right now in the modern West. Even the most trusted Christian think, tank, think tanks like the Barna Group have said that statistically speaking, the church in the West has reached a point of irreversible decline. Did you know that? Statistically speaking, the church in the West has reached a point of irreversible decline. The greatest statistical rise in religious surveys that have been taken across our nation indicates the rise of the nuns. You understand what that means, right? Not the, the nuns in their monasteries, but the people who say, I'm not interested in Christianity. In fact, I'm not interested in faith. We see that as the greatest increase. People are walking away from Christianity, but they're also walking away from faith altogether. And I want to press you to say that in this season of thinking about, like, where's Trinity going? What do we need? What's the new vision? Of course we need, we need new and better strategies to reach and love our neighbors, as Jeff so eloquently told us. We need refined vision of what the gospel can be for the modern mind, the modern heart. But what we really need is, ready, more of God. And we need to encounter God again. Irreversible decline means that we really have two options for our churches. Either we decide to become content as managers of decline. I'm not signing up for that. I'm not interested in that. You are not interested in that. The op other option is we seek the power and presence of God primarily through prayer. Jesus, teach us to pray again. We need more of you. 
So today as we begin going through the Lord's Prayer, let me take you through part one, which we're going to call the experience of prayer. We need an experience of prayer because we need an experience of God. Some people say, hey man, did you get what you needed? Did you get what you were looking for on sabbatical? I want to tell them, oh yeah, I found it. I found it. What were you looking for? Not one thing. I was looking to encounter someone. When you encounter Jesus, you know that there's nothing else that people need. Jesus is the thing that is going to encounter your affection, change your life. And how do I tap into this living God if, if in fact, he is a living God, if he's resurrected, if he's for us, if he's good, if the Holy Spirit has been sent to our planet? Guess where the Holy Spirit lives in you, I want to encounter him. We're not talking about feelings per se. We're not talking about emotional experiences. That may be a part of it, but what we are talking about is encountering a living God. So let's talk part one about an experience of prayer. The experience of prayer. We need an experience of it because we need it to encounter God. Let me give you a couple of barriers to an experience of prayer. Number one, I'm going to call the barrier of secularism. What's secularism? Secularism, in short, is a story about the way things are when God is taken out of the plot line. That's what secularism is. It's just a story about who you are, about who we are, about what we're doing here, about what's of value. But we have taken God out of the storyline, and so we have to replace it. I recently heard an author and a pastor whom I admire a lot, his name is John Tyson, say that Western culture is performing a reverse exorcism. A reverse exorcism. What does he mean by that? He says that Western culture is doing everything it can to exorcise God from the way in which you think and the way in which you live. But if we're going to take God out of the equation, we have to have a God replacement. And in the Western mindset, what is the God replacement? It's none other than you. If the world is not going to revolve around a God who is real, then it's going to revolve around you, and you are going to become God. Project self is dominant. My personal values are on display And if tradition and expectation, if it begins to press against me, it's got to be limited and it's got to be pressed back, especially if it's going to bend my will to do things out of my scope of preference. Does that make sense? God's no longer part of the storyline. Let's exercise him from the way you think, from the way you live, from the way you feel, from the way you love. But if God's not in it, something else has got to be ultimate, and it's project you, project self. But even the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, the opening address, our Father begins to work against that, doesn't it? Our Father, number one, says you're not at the center. Father is. God is. This is not Project Self. This is a thing called the Gospel, and it's His. God is at the center of the storyline. But also what you notice when you say, Our Father, is that it's not an individualistic story. You are not the great grand hero. Your story's knit to mine. And our story is the one that's being lived out with a loving, kind, good father at the center of it. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, you ready for this? We are punching 
holes through the frame of secularism so that God's story and God's presence can shine through. That's what I'd like you to consider this concept of holy resistance. Are we going to punch holes through the storyline of secularism that says God is not real? You are at the center. We go, no, 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 no. Our Father is the centerpiece of my story. Okay? We're going to come back to all of this, just laying some seeds for us to get excited about. Number one, the barrier of secularism in our experience of prayer. Number two, the barrier of consumerism. There's a musician, author, spiritual director. His name is Strayan Coleman. And in his book, Beholding, he writes this. He says, many of us have come to consume God as a way of achieving the best possible life at the lowest possible cost and at our earliest convenience. We may not say it that way, but the theology of consumerism subtly underlies much of the way we see the world, experience church, and sadly, how we pray. For so many of us, the harsh reality is that it's not so much God we want as the security, the emotional experiences, sense-making, or community that he gives us. This shows up in our prayers as the product over the producer. Consumeristic prayer is transactional only. It's about give and take. Ready? Worship for blessings. Repentance for shame lifting. Does Jesus want to bless you? Absolutely. Will he lift your shame? You better believe it. But so often we are only coming to take from our God rather than as Coleman would talk about in his book, behold God. By simply to enjoy him and to waste time in his presence. Many of you go, that's a barrier, ain't got time for that. That's another sermon coming up. I don't have time to waste time with God to enjoy him, to delight in him. We have a consumer mentality. So much of our way of life is governed by speed and efficiency. And now we have supercomputers in our pockets and same-day deliveries, and we treat God as if he's a super-powered operating and delivery system, but he's not. The God of Christianity is the redeemer of the universe. And a consumeristic approach to your faith will nearly forfeit any meaningful, personal, redemptive, interactive uh, encounter with a living God. I've just come to get what you can give me. But a consumer mentality is going to rob you. It will be a thief of what Jesus actually has for you. Third barrier. The barrier of expectation and feelings. Many of you have read the New Testament promises around prayer. You've been in the church for a while. You understand the emphasis. And even if we talk about prayer, there are different emotions that begin to creep into your heart. Some of those being shame or guilt, saying, man, I have heard a series on prayer before. I know I ought to pray more. I don't have the time. And if I'm honest, I get bored. I'm actually not that interested in praying. We're going to do a five, six, seven vision week, uh, vision series through the Lord's Prayer. You have different emotions. And some of those emotions come from unanswered prayer. Because you've read places like Mark eleven twenty four that say, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Number one, you don't understand what it's saying. Number two, you don't understand how it works. And number three, you banked on God showing up and he apparently, at least to the human eyes, he didn't show up. 
He remains silent. And so his perceived silence has totally flattened your spirituality. The Lord's Prayer shows us so many things, but one of them is that the point of prayer is not primarily, you ready, to spur God into action. The point of prayer is not primarily to get God to do things. How do we know that? Because Jesus actually instructs us in verses 7 and 8. Look at those verses again. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. We could have a whole series on them. Why pray? He knows what I need. So if he knows what I need, I know my children. They are getting more complex as they have entered middle school. I'm not always sure what they need. But when they were little, I was pretty sure I understood what they needed. Or at least their mama understood what they needed. Okay? Mamas have the intuition. Our text tells us clearly your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus' instruction, if you look at verses 7 and 8, tell us to seek the Father in prayer in the secret place. And I don't believe in a health and wealth gospel. But Jesus tells us that when we pray in a certain way in a secret place to encounter the Father, he goes, I'll reward you. And you go, all right, what's the reward? I'm going to guarantee you that it's not more of some things, that it's actually more of what? Someone. He goes, I'll reward you. I will meet with you. I will encounter your heart. I mean, I could give you things, but it would be second best. Do you believe that? That the best God can give us is more of himself? He goes, I know what you need, but I'd love to meet with you in the secret place. I'll reward you with more of my life, more of my heart. So Jesus lays out a framework, a vision for prayer that's less about style, it's less about volume, duration, or intensity, and it's more about encountering the living God who is our Father in ways that give shape to the personal contours of your life and my life and our stories and invites God into our moment in a way that simple human, human ingenuity never can Never would. I ain't got enough vision. We don't have enough strategy. We're going to disappoint you as a church. But we can come and seek the living God and ask him to do what we never could. And that's our vision. I want to encounter Jesus. Probably on your worship guide somewhere. I don't have it in front of me. It says, Trinity exists to make and mature followers of Jesus for the glory of God and for the good of others. This is why you're here. I want to encounter God. He's the only thing that can change my life. He's the only person who can change my heart. I want to mature. I want to be different. I want to love different. I want to think different. I want to heal. I want to experience forgiveness. Yes, I want to be blessed. Yes, I want shame lifted off of me. But i got to do it through an encounter with our living God. Secondly, an experience of prayer. Number two, access in prayer. Glance with me at verse five. <clears throat> verse five says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father. All right. Access in prayer. The term hypocrite that Jesus uses in verse 5 was the word used of play actors, Hollywood, people who were on stage, people who were involved in the theater. And Jesus applies this word to people who are going through the external motions of prayer, but their interior reality is not matching the external motion and commotion and movement of their life. This is what they would have understood by the term hypocrite. It's a little different than we understand it. It simply would have been play actor. They are acting. What they're doing is not true to life, right? Their exterior is not matching their interior. And one of the first things I want you to notice, this is revolutionary if you see it and you pick up on it. One of the first things we should notice is that Jesus is not contrasting no praying as if he's shaming the people who don't pray versus praying. He is not contrasting uh, people who are pagan or irreligious versus people who are religious. Look at what he's doing. He's contrasting religious people versus Christians. He's looking at the difference between religious prayer and Christian prayer. See, he calls it hypocritical prayer. And he's first, there's like this great description of it. It says, man, these people love to stand and pray. Anybody love to stand and pray? I go, man, come onto my team. I would love to have you. We need some energy. We need some praying. We love standing and praying. Okay, come on. And then the description goes, they love to stand and pray to be seen by others. They don't love to stand and pray for God. They're not interested in beholding him. They are interested in the exterior, pietistic, religious version of praying. Of course I pray. Have you not heard me pray? Have you heard me pray at community group? I'm quite eloquent at prayer. Can you see the religiosity of my spirit? Listen, it may not transcend into prayer. Maybe it transcends into some other behavior. But the point is, I love to do religious things for me. Not interested, Jesus says. Not interested. It's not prayer. Then he goes on to describe a different sort of praying. He talks about the people who are overly concerned with rituals. I would say it's even a superstitious type of praying. People who think that they're going to be heard because of the mechanics of prayer. If I pray a certain way for a certain amount of time with a certain type of pitch or pace or fervency, then I'm going to have some access to this God. Let me ask you a question. What sort of God is chiefly impressed by your prayer statistics? Is he worthy of your time? Is he worthy of your life and your affections? Maybe you assume that God is up in heaven keeping copious prayer notes because he's preparing for a prayer draft in the same way that some of you prepare for your NFL fantasy football draft. Like he's looking at your life and he's going, oh, that one over there gets up early, check, like them. 
Oh, this one prays a lot. Uh, they get up. They sacrifice their sleep. I love people who sacrifice sleep. Yep. This person prays on their way to work. Uh, this person prays with their eyes closed. This person prays with their eyes closed as they're driving to work. It's like a Jesus take the wheel type person. And lots of points for this person. This person prays before every meal. He's like, oh, he's got a little checklist. This person even prays in public before their meal. Lots of points for that. Most people feel a little insecure, but they don't. Like Jesus is up there. God is up there taking copious notes on your praying, your mechanics. I think if I do enough of that stuff, I'm going to have access to this God. Friends, this way of prayer is impersonal. It's transactional. It's generally insecure and it's mechanical. And this is not Jesus's vision for prayer. He goes, I'm gonna do you one a whole lot better than that. I don't need pitch, pace, fervency, passion. It's not what it's about. He goes, here's your access point. Simply come and say, our Father. It's gonna open up a whole world for you. Religious praying says, if I pay my dues, God ought to give me what I ask for. If I put in the time, God needs to put in the blessing according to my timetable. I am guilty as charged, man. I have prayed like that. Oh, you see what I did? You see how faithful I got up early during sabbatical? I could have been sleeping in. Don't you see what I'm doing? You need to answer my prayer according to my timetable. But what if I pray with a certain passion? What if I pray with a certain expectation? What if I try to believe and not doubt? He goes, that's not the access point. The access point is familial. It's about family, right? We all know that families are not supposed to be transactions. Children don't pay the rent unless they're 27. At that point, they can pay the rent. Little kids don't pay the rent. Father does or mother does. Children are not treated like contract workers. They are loved unconditionally. This is why when things that would disrupt relationships that are not familial... You go, man, if you were not my mother, if you were not my father, if you were not my son or daughter, this thing would be over. But because we're family, I'm with you through it. We know it at a human level. And what Jesus is introducing to us is this access point that's like that. He goes, you don't got to earn your way into God's favor. He is your father. There are ways of relating to a boss or to an employer, to someone you've hired for a specific service, even to your own spouse that are different than how a father relates to his children. I've heard Tim Keller use this illustration. He goes, who in the world can come and knock on the king's door at 3 a.m. and ask him for a cup of water? Only the children. Even his own spouse, he'd say, huh, 3 a.m.? Get your own water. <laughs> but a little one comes into the room and you go, all right, you have access to me at my, my, my most vulnerable. And only the children have that without worry and without fear. And Jesus says, when you pray, say our father, not our boss, not our landlord. And it's because we are his children. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. One more, John 1.12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you don't pray like this, you're not a Christian. A Christian is the only person in the world who can pray to God our Father because he's redeemed you. Who's he redeemed you through? The elder brother. Jesus, the one and only who comes and presents us to the Father, pure and spotless, completely forgiven, all the wrath gone. And he says, these are with me, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, full access, full rights, nothing denied. Your vision of that and your experience of that dictates whether or not you want to encounter this God. And we're going to have to detox through some of our understandings of who this God is. We're going to have to let certain things go, certain images and experiences from our past, so that we can have a revolution in who this God really is. This God is not your boss. This God is not limiting access. This God says, I see you, I love you, and I treat you in the exact same way that I treat my one and only son. Incredible. How does he treat Jesus, the one and only? He looks at him and says, you, son, with you, I am well pleased. And that approval starts to pulse through your heart when you know that you have the right to call this God Father. It changes how you relate to him. It changes the fact that you don't want to just pray on your way to work. You want to get in the secret place because you want the reward. You don't want to manage decline in your own life. You don't want to manage decline in your family. You don't want to manage decline in your church. You want to encounter the living God. How are we going to do it? Through holy resistance. What's it going to look like? We're going to punch holes through the frame of the secular story. And we're going to say, God, we can't do it without you. We don't have enough vision. We don't have enough strategy. We don't have enough resources. But you, oh God, come and encounter us. And we're going to draw near. Isn't this James 4, 8? Draw near to God. And what's the promise? What's the reward? And he will draw near to you. Say it again. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Man, God, we need you here. That's what we're saying. God, we need you here. Before I take us to the last part, which will be short, the story of the prodigal sons is so telling about the father's heart. You know this story well. Here are two young men relating to the father in a mechanical nature. One simply wants his father's money. The other one simply wants his father's approval. And you know that after the younger son comes uh, running back from his wild party in the desert, a.k.a. Vegas, that the father does not simply stand on the edge of the precipice looking out at the silhouette going, oh, this son of mine, he's back, turn him into a servant. You know the father's heart in this story. It says that he is waiting. He is looking And he sees the silhouette of his son finally coming. He tucks his robe into his belt. And this man, this Middle Eastern father, begins to run. And when he gets there, man, he embraces that son and he loves that son. He doesn't heap shame on that son. He forgives that son. This is how the father feels about you. You go, Lord, but I've been so mechanical. I know, I'm running for you. 
But Lord, I've treated you as if kind of like you're a commodity. I've just consumed you. I know, but I'm coming for you. But I don't even know how to relate to you because I didn't know how to relate to my own father. I know I'll redeem and restore. Meet me in the secret place. I know what you need. What you really need is encounter with me. See, our elder brother Jesus has come for us, and when we are found in him, when we believe, he presents us to the Father as full sons and full daughters. This is the access we have. Our Father who art in heaven. God is my Father. He's powerful. He's strong. My Father is God. And look at how this orients us. This is the last point. It'll be short. Experience of prayer, access in prayer, and then we are oriented through the Lord's Prayer. If you've ever been to a place like New York City, you've been in the subway, you pop up to the street, you have this experience of saying, I don't know a certain neighborhood very well. You come up to the main sidewalk, you look around, and everything looks the same. You don't know which way is uptown. You don't know which way is downtown, east, west. Where's the east side? Where's the Hudson? I don't know. So when you pop out because everything looks the same and it's disorienting because it's so tall, you're trying to figure out how do I take a first step in my journey. Like I'm trying to get somewhere in the city, but I'm not sure which way to go. Man, that's secularism. I don't know which way to go. I don't know what story I'm in. I don't know if I have a father. I have to orient myself. And the Lord's Prayer says that story has to end. And what's going to break into that story is a story of redemption through a Father, Son, and Spirit who have done everything, spent everything to bring you into a better story. Do you want to encounter that, God? This prayer will orient your life in the world. You don't have to wonder, man, where's my first next step? I got a journey, got a life to live, but I got to figure this out. He goes, no, no, no. The Lord's prayer is the starting point. Our Father. I'm so hungry for us to encounter this God this fall. There have been a lot of things put in place over the last five years. And I want you to be challenged, but I want you to be encouraged to say, we got to learn how to meet with God again. There are things in my life are going to have to change. Pace, rhythm, frequency. How do I meet with God? Maybe we just simply hold up both hands and just go like this. Jesus, I don't know how, teach me to pray. It would be our honor to learn together to encounter this God, yeah? This is where we're going. I'm excited we're going there together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray orientation around the gospel would be happening right now in our seats in this space. And we want to meet with the living God. There's so much discouragement that can creep in when we forget who you are. There's so many things that have to be restructured in our own hearts with regards to who you really are. Can we really have access to you? Are you too far, too foreign? Are we too broken, too sinful, too shameful? Too much baggage, too many mistakes? Or is there something true about the way in which you relate to us as Father? Adoption is at the heart of Christianity. There are so many people who do not get to call you Father 
because they have not encountered the elder brother. They have not placed their faith in Jesus. And so they're disoriented. They're dizzy. They are looking for something to make sense of their life. It's right here. Jesus, we pray for holy resistance. We want to encounter you. We're going to need your help. Show us what to say no to and what to say yes to. Help us to figure out the secret place where you are to be found. There's a Father who knows what we need. We, our lives are so intimately held in your hands. There must be something more than simply giving us things that you're after. I think it's giving us yourself. So Jesus, we ask for more of that, for more of you. Teach us to pray. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.